we have been looking in our series thus far uh, called The Story of God, where we've been looking at the overall history of God's working throughout uh, scriptural history, throughout the world, from a 30,000-foot view. Uh, and we've been doing this in order to kind of really see what is God's story, to be able to better understand the Bible, but also to be able to understand our places inside of God's story. Thus far, we've looked at the eras in history of the creation and early humanity. We've talked about the era of the patriarchs, the era of the exodus and the wilderness. We've talked about the era of the conquest and the judges, the era of the kings. And then last week, we talked about the era of the exile and the return. And today, we're going to cross the invisible line from the Old Testament into the New Testament. The title of our sermon today is The Story of God During the Era of the Life of of Jesus. Everything that we've been looking at thus far in Scripture has been pointing us to this day. And so this morning in Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to invite you to stand with me uh, in reverence to the reading of God's Word. And we are going to pick up on the third day after Jesus' crucifixion at the account from the Gospel of Matthew at his resurrection, which is obviously the pinnacle moment in the life of of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the mother of and the other Mary, came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Now go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that, Lord, this morning as we come in the name of Jesus, God, is that we come by means of a living Savior. Who right now, Lord Jesus, you are seated at the right hand of the Father. And you ever live to make intercession for the saints. God, I I pray this morning, Lord, help me to do you justice, Lord, as I attempt to walk through your life. But Father, I pray that God, believing that you want to speak in the lives of your people here today. God, we talk about revival. We talk about, uh, Lord, even singing this morning about your blood. But Lord, we ask today, Jesus, God, would you do that inner work within us? For your name and glory. Show us your face, O Lord. Help us to come into your presence, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Now, obviously, this morning, as we look at the era of the life of Jesus, I've been excited as we've walked through the story of God throughout all the eras of of biblical history, leading us to this point. And church family, I I believe that God is pleased that we've taken the fall to better understand the whole picture of God. We can say that this fall of 2022, that we looked at the God of the Bible. 
And today as we cross that line into the New Testament, we need to recognize when we talk about the life of Jesus, we are talking about the most significant person, the most significant life that has ever been lived. The name of Jesus has been more widely known and celebrated and hated more than any other name in any other period of time ever. And in fact, in the modern world, for hundreds of years, we have kept track of time, of how we look backwards in time by dividing time by the life of Jesus. Now, no matter if you, how you describe it today, it has always been and always will be the, the moment in time where it was before Christ, everything before Christ, and everything after that. And the reason why is because everything in history paused for a moment to recognize this significant life and this significant event. Again, everything that we've looked at in the Old Testament has been leading up to Jesus. And so this morning, as we walk into the life of Jesus, recognize that we're walking on holy ground and that God wants to speak to us this morning. So we're going to follow our questions that we've used during this series. And so question number one today about the era of the life of Jesus are, what are the major happenings during this season in God's story? So this morning, I want to give us some major points on the timeline of the life of Jesus. And the first major point on the timeline of the life of Jesus is that we need to know that the coming of Jesus followed a season of great silence in God's story. You know, we left off last week with the return of God's people back to Israel from exile under the leadership of men like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. The Bible makes it clear that once they arrived, that they rebuilt Jerusalem, they rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, that they reinstituted worship and their ceremonial sacrifices and those things. But then from this point, the scripture shows us and historical record shows us that once they were reestablished in the land, this begins a roughly 400-year time span where God was silent in the lives of his people. Now, not silent in the essence that they heard nothing from God. They had the Old Testament. They had the law. They were still hearing from God from what he had spoken. But God did nothing new during this season. There were roughly no more, pro- there were no prophets really after they were established in the land. There was uh, no more inspired scripture that came during these, this season in the land. The Catholic Bible has within it the Apocrypha, which gives some historical references uh, to this era inside, this silent era in the lives of God's people, but it should not be considered inspired scripture. So essentially, God was silent during this era. It was also during this 400 years that God's people endured many other rulers that took claim on Israel and on Jerusalem and the people of God. The Persian Empire of Nehemiah's day gave way to the armies of Alexander Alexander the Great. And then from there then gave way to the Ptolemies of Egypt and then the Seleucids of Syria. And finally the reign of the Roman Empire came to the nation of Israel. During these empires, the people of God were able to maintain their religious practices by and large, but they effectively lived under a police state. And it was during this time that the people of God started to long for and look for the Messiah at a level that they had not previous to this. In much of the scriptures, God spoke about a day when he would immensely bless his people and he would ultimately bless all the world through his people and that he would raise up someone to sit on the throne of David and his kingdom would have no end. Now, 
for the people of God who were living under the Roman Empire, who were living under Alexander the Great, who were living under these people, well, they were looking for a military conqueror. They were looking for a king to come in and reestablish Israel like they were in the days of David and Solomon. But that was not necessarily the savior, the king that God was planning to bring. But we see all during this era, they were looking for the Messiah. And the Bible clearly states that a Messiah was coming. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. It's one of our most famous messianic prophecies. Isaiah says, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord would accomplish this. So prior to Jesus, this is what the people of God are looking for. They're looking for a Messiah. They're in an era of silence, but they're looking for this day. And it is in this anticipation that Jesus enters the scene. The second major point on the timeline of the life of Jesus is that then we need to understand the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Now, I know I've got to be careful here this morning. We're not quite at Christmas yet. And for all of you ladies and men who are just dying to take that Christmas tree out, I'm going to tell you, if you take that Christmas tree out before Thanksgiving, you're weird, okay? I, I listen. You just need to know that today. And and I know that I'm treading on dangerous ground a few months out here from Christmas. But today, to look at the life of Jesus, we've got to look at his birth. The birth of Jesus is one of the most famous narratives in all of recorded history. This is the moment where God became flesh. And his theological circles know it as the incarnation. The story of the events of Jesus' coming and his birth begins with a visit by the angel Gabriel and his promise to Mary. In Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 36, it records this moment. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favor one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And this miraculous moment doesn't just end with Mary. In Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, Mary's betrothed husband, has a similar encounter with an angel in a dream that assures Joseph that the child growing inside of Mary's womb is by the Holy Spirit, and he should not be afraid to take her as his wife. And the angel speaks to Joseph about this child and says in Matthew 1.21 that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Church, we need to see here that not only was the announcement of the birth of Jesus supernatural, angels and virgin births, think about all the supernatural events that are going on here, but also it was prophetic. That God was saying that I am bringing the one whose kingdom will not end, but it will not be an earthly kingdom. It will be a heavenly kingdom because his main purpose will be to take away the sins of 
the world. And then the Bible says, so Joseph takes Mary as his wife and keeps her a virgin until the Lord's birth. And then the story of the coming in Jesus would then have to include his birth in Bethlehem. In Luke chapter 2, the Bible says that Joseph takes Mary and leaves for Bethlehem because he had to register for the Roman census that called for everyone to return to the place of their ancestral birth. And since Joseph was of the line of David, he had to return to Bethlehem. Once they arrived, Mary goes into labor, but because the city is so crowded, there was no place for them to stay. And so essentially she gives birth in a barn and lays Jesus in a manger, which was a feeding trough. However, the birth of the Son of God did not come without acknowledgement from heaven. Luke chapter 2 verses 8 through 16 records the incredible events of the shepherds in Bethlehem on the night that Jesus was born. In Luke 2 verse 8 it says, In the same region there were shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. Then the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you, that you will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appealed with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Church family, if you could step into a biblical time machine, this would have to be one of the moments that I would want to visit. I would want to be in those fields outside of Bethlehem on that night to see all of the skies erupt with a host of heavenly angels in this heavenly choir singing about the glory of God and the Savior who had been born. This is the moment where John chapter 1 becomes a reality, where God becomes flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Emmanuel moment. But we don't need to miss, by the way, how stunning of a moment this is. And it is the moment where God breaks 400 years of silence. Think about that. 400 years God's people have been waiting for a word from God, been waiting on a Messiah, and suddenly God breaks through this moment and proclaims that a Savior has been born. Just this last week, I, I tried to wrap my mind around a comparable moment in our history of silence and anticipation that gives way to great joy. And the thing that came to mind was the reentry of Apollo 13. On April 17, 1970, Apollo 13 made their way back to Earth safely. And if you never heard this story, Apollo 13 was a mission by NASA to the moon shortly after Neil Armstrong's Apollo 11 mission where he walked on the moon. However, en route to the moon, Apollo 13 suffered a terrible explosion and several days of struggle where they were trying to keep the astronauts alive. Finally, on April 17th, they were nearing Earth and they were going to attempt re-entry. The concern was that the damage to the ship might not make it through the inferno of re-entry because of, uh, of damage and things that their ship may have entailed. NASA was aware that they would experience a momentary radio blackout. They would experience a season of silence on re-entry but no spacecraft before this that that season of silence had lasted more than three minutes. Once Apollo 13 went into radio silence, the world watched and waited to see if they would reemerge. One minute went by and the world prayed. 
Two minutes went by and everyone was on the edge of their seat. As the three-minute mark approached, all the controllers in Houston waited eagerly along with the listening world to hear a communication from the astronauts. But there was nothing. Three minutes turned to three minutes and 30 seconds approached. The controllers in Houston said, Houston, this is Odyssey. Do you read was the call, but there was no response. And then the four-minute mark went by. Everyone began to assume the worst. They must have not made it. They must have been consumed in the fire of reentry. And the silence was deafening. However, a few seconds after the four-minute mark, the radio started to crackle. And video was being sent back to Houston that caught a glimpse of what looked like the spacecraft deploying parachutes. And then suddenly, a voice over the radio broke out, Houston, this is Odyssey. It's good to see you again. And all the world rejoiced. And all the controllers there at Houston rejoiced because Apollo 13 had emerged. This must have been what it was like for the people of God who had been waiting in silence for a Messiah for 400 years. Sixteen generations of God's people had been waiting for the appearing of God and His promises. When the first 100 years went by, you can only imagine that God's people began to wonder if the God who worked so mightily in their past would ever be seen or heard from again. For the next hundred years, I can imagine the people are sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for some sort of word from God. And then as you approach the next hundred years, and then you get to that 400-year mark, I can imagine that many of God's people were beginning to be discouraged. The silence from God was deafening. However, suddenly, God started to make some noise. He showed up in Nazareth to the home of a young virgin girl and and said that, Behold, as the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will give birth to a son and he will take up the throne of his father David and then to a man named Joseph in a dream that said, Hey, there's coming one who will save the people from their sins. The radios from heaven were crackling and then suddenly in a town outside of Bethlehem is that the radio of heaven broke through and the scripture said that the The angel says, for today in the city of David has been born for you a Christ who is your Lord. And I don't want to go against tradition here today, but Bethlehem was everything but a silent night. It was God breaking through the silence because a Savior had been born. Let's give the Lord glory and praise in the house of the Lord today. Listen, I've been waiting six weeks to get to this place now. You leave the birth, and then you get to the third major point on the timeline of the life of Jesus, is that then we need to understand the ministry of Jesus. Now, the ministry of Jesus, we don't see him really after this moment. We see him briefly once at 12 years old and being in his father's house in the temple, but then you don't see him again until he's roughly 30 years old as he begins his ministry. The Gospels show us that he went through a moment of preparation for ministry. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we see Jesus' baptism at his first public moment before he officially begins his ministry. It says that in those days, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw heavens open in the Spirit like a dove descending on him. And a voice came out of the heavens saying, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. This is an amazing moment in Scripture. This is a place where you see the Trinity all in one place at one time. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It also should remind all of us parents here this morning. That if it was good for the Father to tell the Son of God, I love you and I'm proud of you, then it's good for every one of us as parents to tell our children regularly, I love you and I'm proud of you. 
Immediately after this moment, the Gospels show us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus enters into the wilderness. For 40 days he fasts and he is tempted by the enemy, but he overcomes the enemy's temptation and angels come to minister to him. And then in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, we see Jesus officially beginning his ministry. It says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district, and he began teaching their synagogues and was praised by all. And there are several aspects of Jesus' ministry we need to look at. The Gospels show us the powerful teaching of Jesus' ministry. As we just saw in Luke chapter 4, as soon as Jesus began his ministry, teaching was a cornerstone of what he did. Matthew chapter 5 verse 7 shows us the Sermon on the Mountain, which is a cornerstone of truth for Christian faith. But he taught well beyond just the Sermon on the Mountain. Jesus taught many things. The Bible shows us that Jesus taught about man's sinfulness. He showed that man was sinful, not just in his actions, but from his heart. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, showing that it is from the heart of man that came all sorts of sin and brokenness. The Bible shows us that Jesus taught about God's judgment. is that he's taught that we were sinful from the heart and that God's judgment was rightly going to one day be poured out on those who had not received his mercy. Jesus spoke more about hell and God's judgment than anyone else in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, when Jesus is calling people to fear God, he said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, speaking of God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So Jesus talked about man's sinfulness and God's judgment, but he also talked about God's forgiveness. In John chapter 3, verse 17, right after the famous John three sixteen, that God loved us and he sent his son for us, He speaks about forgiveness through him, saying, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The teaching ministry of Jesus was something that truly set him apart in the world. The Bible says that when he would teach, the people were astonished by him. And why was that? It's because they were hearing the voice of God. The Gospels also show us the mighty miracles of Jesus' ministry. The miracles of Jesus are too many to count. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He fed the thousands. He walked on water and he calmed the seas at his word. In Luke chapter 7, verses 22 through 23, when uh, John the Baptist sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one we've been waiting on or should we expect another? Jesus said, go and report back to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The miracle working power of Jesus consistently showed him as the Christ, the Son of God. To see Jesus and to not see his miracles and his supernatural ability is to not see the biblical Jesus. The gospels also show us the incredible compassion of Jesus' ministry. One of the things that set the ministry of Jesus apart from many of the religious leaders of his day was that he sought out the most lost and broken and sinful people in society to minister to. I love how in Matthew chapter 9, verses 11 through 13, Jesus is questioned by religious leaders because he's spending time with tax collectors. And then this is what he says in verse 12. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. He said, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Every one of us in this room today, we need to say amen to the fact that Jesus was one who pursued the sinful, who pursued those who were far from God. Because if we ever stop seeing ourselves as those who were sinful and far from God, then we miss the grace that was given to us in Jesus. I got to hear a testimony just this last week of a great godly man here at Indian Baptist Church, Brother Mike Hughes, shared his testimony. And I love that as he talked about a season in his life when he rebelled against God and ran from God, he wept as he talked about a Savior who kept pursuing him during this moment. This is the Jesus we serve. The Gospels also show us the union Jesus had with God in his ministry. One of the most important factors for us to know about the life of Jesus is to know that he himself regularly affirmed himself as also God and his oneness with the Father. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. I love in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, I won't read it all, but as Jesus comes in and reads a messianic prophecy about the coming Messiah, about he who the Spirit of the Lord rested upon, the Bible says when he finished reading that prophecy, that he handed the scroll back to the attendant, he sat down and he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's essentially saying, I am the man that Isaiah spoke about. And we could go on over and over again about all the different things that Jesus did in his ministry. But these are just some highlights. And he did this ministry for roughly three to three and a half years. And then the fourth and final major point on the timeline of the life of Jesus is that we need to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus. We need to know today that the Bible makes it clear that Jesus always knew that his coming death was on the horizon. In Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 23 After Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God, Jesus says to his disciples, son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. The Bible records that that is exactly what took place. The gospel will show us that Jesus was arrested in the garden of Gethsemane and after having Passover with his disciples, he was abused and interrogated before the Jewish religious leaders and then was turned over to the Roman official Pontius Pilate for him to be crucified. And although Pilate found no fault in him, he agreed for Jesus to be crucified after having been severely flogged and mocked again by Roman soldiers. He was then forced to carry his cross out of the city one agonizing step after another until he could carry it no longer. Once he arrived at Golgotha, the Bible says that he was stripped naked and then he was nailed to the cross. On the cross, again, Jesus is mocked by those around him. But his response was to pray that God would forgive them. He suffered in agony for six hours, from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m., fighting the slow death between excruciating pain and suffocation. And finally, the Gospels of Matthew and John record his final words. In Matthew 27, verses 45 through 50, show us the next to last statements of Jesus on the cross. It says, From about the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge filled with sour wine, he put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. In John 19.30, we see what that final cry was. It says, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Church family, what was happening here was more than just physical suffering, while it was absolutely that. But the greatest suffering that Jesus endured in this moment was the fact that while he was on the cross, he took the wrath of God. He took all of the judgment that God and hatred that God has against sin and sinners, and he took it upon himself. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, John speaks about what Jesus did on the cross. It says, and he himself is the propitiation which means the one who took the wrath of God for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus being on the cross was not just an act of love, which it was. It was not just physical death of an innocent man, which it was. But Jesus' death on the cross was the completion of a mission that God had started at the very beginning to bring sinful humanity back into a relationship with God, to cure the brokenness that we have in this world without the Father. Everything that we've talked about, all the redemptive threads since the beginning, meet at this moment. On the cross, Jesus was crushing the head of Satan, though he was injuring himself in the process, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3. On the cross, Jesus was paving a way for all the nations of the world to be blessed as he promised Abraham by bringing forgiveness and grace. On the cross, Jesus became the ram that was caught in the thicket to substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac as Jesus stood in our place to take our sacrifice for us. On the cross, Jesus was the true Passover lamb in which his blood would cause the wrath of God to pass by. On the cross, Jesus became the one that we could look to in faith and be healed as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness that those could be healed. Everything in the Old Testament, all the redemptive threads, the, 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 the Rahabs that were saved, the, the red cords that were hung out of the window, all the pictures of God saying, I'm going to send a Savior They all come to fruition. They all become flesh and blood. It all becomes real in this moment. The promises of Scripture are fulfilled. And from here, the hymns of the faith are penned in blood. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But He washed it white as snow. The Bible says that after Jesus' death, that his body is taken down and placed in a tomb nearby where it remained for the rest of Friday, day one. And then throughout the day on Saturday, which was the Sabbath, day two. You can imagine the grief of his followers during this time. 
And then as we read in our text this morning, when the sun rose on Easter Sunday morning on the third day, the ladies found that the stone had been rolled away and the angels at the tomb asked the ladies, why do you look for the living among the dead? For he is not here, he is risen as he said. Church family, this was the first of many times after they run into Jesus there. This is the first of many times where Jesus would show himself as alive. The resurrection of Jesus is the exclamation point on the life of Jesus. It is the foundation of the Christian faith because he is alive. I can live because he rose. I can rise from dead because he remains because he is lifted up. One day I will be lifted up. This is our hope and our resurrection here. That Jesus is alive. Now church, obviously there's so much more today that we could talk about in the life of Jesus. But these are the highlights this morning. And very quickly as we prepare to close, I want to give you question number two. What are the key lessons God wants us to learn from this era in his story? There's so much if the Lord could show us in this passage, as I prayed as your pastor this week and asked the Lord, say, God, what do you want our people to hear this morning? It felt like the Lord laid two things on my heart. And this is the first thing that I just want you to hear this morning, is that as we see the era of the life of Jesus, we just need to remember today that Jesus is real. Jesus is real. While our faith is based on faith, at the same time we can know that historical accuracy of the life of Jesus is unprecedented. We believe so much more in ancient history that is affirmed by so little as compared to the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus are two of the most historically accurate things that we have from ancient history. And even the resurrection of Jesus is something that is affirmed to not just by Christian scholars, but even by secular scholars. Atheistic, atheistic New Testament scholar Greg Ludman said this, it may be taken historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Did you hear that? This man's an atheist, but he says it cannot be denied. You can take it as a fact that these disciples had some sort of experience with Jesus being alive. The reality is, is that sometimes, church, we need to be reminded that Jesus was in Israel so as we read about his birth today, we need to know that Jesus really did breach the womb. As we read about his ministry and all the things that he did, that he taught God's word, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he walked on water, he suffered on the cross, the nails really did pierce his hands. He really did breathe his last. We need to know that that's real. But in the same way that Jesus was real when he died, we need to know today. That on the third day, on an Easter Sunday morning when he walked out of the tomb, is that that's real also. And I know it by faith and I know it by the scriptures and I know it by historical accuracy. And yes, now I, I was not there when it happened. But there's so many things that I was not physically there that I take as fact today. In 11th grade, on September 11th, and I got to watch the Twin Towers fall. I was not at ground zero. But I heard the reports and I saw the footage, 
And I heard from those who were there, and I knew that it was real. Today, through the eyes of faith, I have seen the reports. I have heard from those who have testified, and I believe today it is real. In the words of the old hymn, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Today, sometimes you just need to know that Jesus is real. And the last thing you need to know this morning is you need to know today that Jesus really is still at work among us today. Friends, the Bible shows us that after Jesus left this earth in his bodily ascension, is that he continued to move and work in the world through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and through his servants. In John chapter 16, Jesus actually said it was good. He said, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, but if I go, I will send him to you. And we'll talk more about this next week as we talk about the era of the church age. But if you look after Jesus' ascension, you still see the power of Jesus moving and working in the lives of people. After Jesus rose from the grave, ascended back to the Father, we see that Jesus was still saving people from their sins. And he is still doing that today. We see after Jesus ascended back to the Father, we see Jesus still setting people free from strongholds and of the flesh and of darkness, and he is still doing that today. As I prayed this morning, preparing for this service, I felt like the Lord wanted me to remind everyone, even let this be my prayer today, at the name of Jesus, the demonic spirits still flee. And so if you're here this morning and you are plagued with the demonic, you are plagued today with spiritual darkness, you are plagued today with brokenness in the flesh. I just speak in the name of Jesus today on the authority of Christ. Be free in Jesus' name. I had a lady come up to me right after service and said, Brother Zach, I just want to let you know, man, that, uh, that I am four weeks uh, uh, free from quitting smoking. I've smoked for 40 years. I just want to let you know that the, the Lord has set me free. Church, God is still doing that. The Bible shows us that after his ascension, that Jesus was still at work to heal and minister to his people. I got to hear a story just this last week of one of our friends from the church who was struggling with debilitating depression. But after some godly ladies rallied around her and prayed for her and after seeking some health and wisdom from doctors and medications and these things because God has given us those things also is that a message was received this last week that she's better than she's ever been. Praise God for that. He's still alive and at work. God is still calling people to serve him for the rest of their lives. The same way Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and saw Peter and John, saw James, saw Andrew and said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They left their nets and followed him. The same way that Jesus called out to Saul on the road to Damascus and said, you will be my vessel among the Gentiles. And he ended up able to go and serve. Jesus is still calling people to serve. We've got in our own church staff right now, Brian Rice, who is doing such an incredible job with our children's ministry. He was doing a secular job for 20 years. When it came time for us to start looking and praying for a full-time children's minister, is that he answered the call to go. God is still at work. In church, sometimes today, we just need to believe again. Sometimes we just need to believe again that Jesus is real and that Jesus is still at work. One of my favorite things in the world is to those moments... Where the Lord lets us break through and just see a little bit of heaven on earth. I long for that day. I got it right here on the pulpit. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 12. We see now as a mirror dimly but one day face to face. 
Man, one day, I'm going to see him face to face. But sometimes, God lets us see a little reflection of heaven in this world. Sometimes we see Jesus alive and at work in this world. Like we did in the New Testament, we see God doing these works. And it's, it's those things that just ground our faith, those things that stir us on. I love to hear the story of Muslims all over the world right now. In places where the gospel is not allowed to go, but they can't keep the Holy Spirit out. Muslims are having dreams of Jesus. Tell them to seek him and they're making treks for miles through dangerous situations to find their way to people's houses to hear the gospel and they're coming to faith in Christ. I I love to hear the stories of how Jesus is supernaturally putting people at the right place at the right time to hear the gospel just like we saw with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts. The Summit Church in Conway, uh, where my brother planted a few years ago, is that they had a college girl who grew up in a very secular home, who was away, had never heard the gospel, but got away to college, and God was stirring her heart, and she was getting ready to go to bed one night, and she just prayed a prayer to heaven. She had never prayed before and said, God, if you're real, would you just show yourself to me? She had a dream that night that she was inside of a church and that God had done a work in her heart. She got up that next morning on Sunday morning, walked out of her dorm, and just started walking down the sidewalk out of her complex there off the campus of University of Central Arkansas. She walked just a few hundred yards and walked right past the Summit Church Conway. She made her way into the building that morning, heard the gospel, gave her life to Jesus, was powerfully changed, and after service was over with, they said, how did you hear about us? She said, I had a dream that God told me to come today. Jesus is still at work. But one of the greatest things that Jesus is still doing is he's still meeting with and encouraging his people. I want to ask Brother Ron to come. Several months ago, I don't remember how long ago it was, I had a day. You ever had to have those low days? Come on now, don't be that spiritual. <laughs> Just have them low days, you got to look up to see heaven. I don't know why, but I had one of those days. And, and I, it's like I challenge our staff guys, we come in here and Spend an hour with Jesus every day. And I read in my one-year Bible that morning, though, 2 Corinthians 4, 16, that says, Though our, we do not lose heart, that though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So I came in here with a promise from the Lord. And, you know, God, I, I just believe that you said that you'll meet with me day by day. And you know right now you feel like you're a million miles away. So, Lord, I just, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stay here until I meet with you. About halfway between the pulpit and that back door, I was laying in that aisle. Just got on my face before the Lord. I prayed till I couldn't pray anymore. I was just, Jesus, I'm here. Would you be the lifter of my head? And I felt like the Lord laid on my heart, gave me a picture in my mind that I just needed to raise my hand up. So I lifted my hand up just right there where I was. And I'm telling you, the Lord gave me a picture of Jesus walking through and just taking me by the hand. And I just sat there for a moment. I didn't say a word. Jesus, thank you that you're near to me. And in my soul, it was just like I was holding his hand. Now listen, did Jesus walk in the room and physically hold my hand? No. But can I say something to you? The Holy Spirit gave me a physical picture, gave me a promise of something that's already been guaranteed in Scripture, that he is near to me. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 4 that I need to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be made known unto all men that the Lord is near. And when I waited on him, the Lord gave me a picture, a reminder. Hey, Zach, I'm near. And it was so sweet. I went down heavy and I came up full. My soul 
had met with my Savior. The church family, sometimes we get really good at church. We get really good at singing about the blood. We get real good at going through the motions. As we were singing our hymns this morning that were so good. Thank you, Brother Kid. We were singing this morning. I felt like the Lord brought in my heart for me too. Sometimes we can honor the Lord with our lips. But our hearts are far from Him. In church this morning, that's not what God wants for us. Jesus is one who wants to be near to us today. And sometimes we just need to believe again. Sometimes we just need to pursue Him again. Sometimes we need to just come back to our first love. And this morning, as we talk about the era in the life of Jesus that ends with our living Savior, how could we walk out of here today and not pursue that Savior this morning? Maybe some of you today just need to say, Oh Lord, would you just take me by the hand again? Just take me by the hand again. Our pastor's going to be up front here in just a moment. If you need somebody to pray with you, let me tell you something. There's, there's power, man, in letting people pray over you. Come, let us pray over you. If you want to come and just kneel at this altar. You know, we talked earlier about that revival that happened at Indian Baptist Church in the 1900s. Let me tell you something. God works when people are expecting Him. And maybe today we just need fresh movement of the Lord in our hearts. Maybe you want to come today and say, Lord, would you take my hand? Or maybe this morning you've, you've never known Him. You just don't know him. You're religious. Or maybe you're just visiting church here today. But you don't know that you know that you know Jesus. Know this today. For the Son has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He can save you right there where you are. You call out to him and just say, Jesus, save me. Brother John is here, my dearest friends in the world. And one of my favorite parts of his testimony was when he would say, when I got saved, he said, I prayed three words. Lord, save Maybe this morning you need to call out to Jesus to save you. You can do that right where you are. We're about to sing. I'm going to ask Brother Ken to come. He's going to lead us in a hymn of invitation. As we sing, this is your moment to go meet with God. And church family, don't be afraid about the people around you. Don't worry about what it means to come kneel at an altar. Listen, we've got to die to that stuff. Why should we come to church if we don't expect to meet with Jesus? So just come and meet with Him. If you need to kneel at this altar... If you need to turn and pray with your wife, if you need to let one of our pastors come pray for you, you come. But let's just ask the Lord afresh. Oh, Jesus, would you take us by the hand? Would you stand today? Oh, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Father, would you, God, would you let those right now who know that they need a fresh touch from you, say, God, they just need to walk with you afresh and anew. Would you help them to reach out in faith? If that means to come down Maybe kneel at an altar. If that means to get one of our pastors to pray for them, Lord. And maybe even if that means today that they just need to give their lives to you. God, would they do that right now in these next few moments? And Lord, I pray you'd meet with them in Jesus' name. Amen.